0: This is Rob Reiner. I've always told people that if you really want to enjoy The Princess Bride, you really must get the book, because the book is is so dense and so rich with ideas and so much fun, there was no way we could get it all in in the movie. And I think we did a credible job. I mean, we did uh, as good a job and we were as faithful as we could possibly be. But. I also recorded an audio version of the novel for Dove Entertainment and you're about to hear excerpts from that recording which will provide you with some insight into the extensive detailed background of the film's characters and so without further ado let's uh, let's take, give it a whirl William Goldman's The Princess Bride It's 1941 autumn I'm a little cranky because my radio won't get the football games I lie back listening to the soaps and after a while I try finding Northwestern versus Notre Dame and my stupid radio will pick up every Chicago station except the one carrying the game. It was so frustrating. I was lying there sweating, and my stomach felt crazy, and I was pounding the top of the radio to make it work right, and that was how they discovered I was delirious with pneumonia. Pneumonia today is not what it once was, especially when I had it. Ten days or so in the hospital and then home for a long recuperating period. I was just this lump going through a strength-gathering time which is how you have to think of me when I came upon the Princess Bride. It was my first night home, drained, still one sick cookie. My father came in. I thought to say good night. He sat on the end of my bed. Chapter One, The Bride, he said. It was only then that I kind of looked up and saw he was holding a book. I said, huh? What? I didn't hear. Chapter One, The Bride. He held up the book then. I'm reading it to you for relax by S. Morgenstern, great Florinese writer, the Princess Bride. Picture this now, an all but illiterate old man struggling with an enemy tongue, an all but exhausted young boy fighting against sleep. Who could suspect that in the morning a different child would awake? Even a week later, I was not aware of what had begun that night. What happened was just this. I got hooked on the story. For the first time in my life I became actively interested in a book. Me, the sports fanatic. Me, the game freak. Me, the only ten-year-old in Illinois with a hate on for the alphabet wanted to know what happened next. The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure. The Good Parts version, abridged by William Goldman. The year that Buttercup was born, the most beautiful woman in the world was a French scullery maid named Annette. Annette worked in Paris for the Duke and Duchess de Guiche, and it did not escape the Duke's notice that someone extraordinary was polishing the pewter. Buttercup at 15 knew none of this. She was not the most beautiful woman in the world, but she was in the top 20, and that primarily on potential, certainly not on any particular care she took of herself. She hated to wash her face. She loathed the area behind her ears. She was sick of combing her hair. What she liked to do was ride her horse and taunt the farm boy. The horse's name was Horse, and it came when she called it, and it did what she told it. The farm boy did what she told him, too. Actually, he was more a young man now, but he had been a farm boy when, orphaned, he had come to work for her father, and Buttercup referred to him that way still. Farm boy, fetch me this. Get me that, farm boy. Quickly, you lazy thing. Trot now, or I'll tell father. As you wish. That was all he ever answered, as you wish. The farm boy had eyes like the sea before a storm, but who cared about eyes? And he had pale blonde hair, if you like that sort of thing. And certainly he was muscular, but anybody would be muscular who slaved all day. Oh, Buttercup cast. Oh, oh, dear. She was outside his hovel before dawn, "'I love you,' Buttercup said. "'I know this must come as something of a surprise, "'since all I've ever done is scorn you and degrade you and taunt you. "'But I have loved you for several hours now, and every second more. "'Dearest Wesley, I've, I've never called you that before, have I? "'Wesley, Wesley, Wesley, darling Wesley, sweet perfect Wesley, "'whisper that I have a chance to win your love.' "'And with that she dared the bravest thing she'd ever done. "'She looked right into his eyes.' He closed the door in her face. Buttercup ran. She whirled and burst away, and the tears came bitterly. She could not see. She stumbled. She slammed into a tree trunk, fell, rose, ran on. Back to her room she fled, back to her pillow. Safe behind the locked door, she drenched the world with tears. It was dusk when she heard footsteps outside her door, then a knock. I've been saying it so long to you. You just wouldn't listen. Every time you said farm boy do this, you thought I was answering as you wish, but that's only because you were hearing wrong. I love you, was what it was. I'll send for you soon, believe me. He reached out his right hand. Buttercup found it very hard to breathe. She managed to raise her right hand to his. They shook. Goodbye, he said. She made a little nod. He took a third step, not turning. She watched him. He turned, and the words ripped out of her. Without one kiss? They fell into each other's arms. It was dawn when the two horsemen reined in at the hilltop. Count Rugen rode a splendid black horse, large, perfect, powerful. The prince rode one of his whites. She delivers milk in the mornings, Count Rugen said and she is truly without question no possibility of error beautiful? She was something of a mess when I saw her, the Count admitted, but the potential was overwhelming. A milkmaid. The Prince ran the words across his rough tongue. I don't know that I could wed one of them even under the best conditions. People might snicker that she was the best I could do. True, the Count admitted. If you prefer, we can ride back to Florence City without waiting. Well, we've come this far,' the prince said. "'We might as well... eh?' "'His voice quite simply died. "'I'll take her,' he managed, finally, "'as Buttercup rode by below them. "'No one will snicker, I think,' the count said. "'I must court her now,' the prince said. "'Leave us alone for a minute.' "'He rode the white expertly down the hill. "'Buttercup had never seen such a giant beast "'or such a rider. "'I am your prince, and you will marry me,' "'Humperdinck said.' Buttercup whispered, I am your servant and I refuse. I am your prince and you cannot refuse. I am your loyal servant and I just did. Refusal means death. Kill me then. I am your prince and I'm not that bad. How could you rather be dead than married to me? Because, Buttercup said, marriage involves love and this is not a pastime at which I excel. I tried once and it went badly and I am sworn never to love another. Love, said Prince Humberdinck, Who mentioned love? Not me, I can tell you. Look, there must always be a male heir to the throne of Florin. Once my father dies, there won't be an heir, just a king. When that happens, I'll marry and have children until there is a son. So you can either marry me and be the richest and most powerful woman in a thousand miles and give away turkeys at Christmas and provide me a son... Or well, you can die in terrible pain in the very near future. Make up your own mind. I'll never love you. I wouldn't want it if I had it. Then by all means, let us marry. Will make the the have his love. She still loved to ride, and every afternoon, whether permitting or not, she rode alone for several hours in the wild land before the castle. Suddenly she reined horse, for standing in the dimness beyond was the strangest trio she had ever seen, The man in front was dark, a Sicilian perhaps, with the gentlest face, almost angelic. He had one leg too short and the makings of a humpback, but he moved forward toward her with surprising speed and nimbleness. We are but poor circus performers, the Sicilian explained. That was all Buttercup remembered. His hands expertly touched places on her neck and unconsciousness came. She woke to the lapping of water. She was wrapped in a blanket, and the giant Turk was putting her in the bottom of a boat. "'I think you should kill her now,' the Turk said. "'The less you think, the happier I'll be,' the Sicilian answered. "'She must be found dead on the Gilder frontier, "'or we will not be paid the remainder of our fee. "'Is that clear enough for you?' "'I just feel better when I know what's going on. "'That's all,' the Turk mumbled. "'People are always thinking I'm so stupid because I'm big and strong "'and sometimes drool a little when I get excited.' The reason people think you're stupid, the Sicilian said, is because you are stupid. It has nothing to do with your drooling. Watch your heads, the Spaniard cautioned, and then the boat was moving. The people of Florin will not take her death well, I should think. She has become beloved. There will be war, the Sicilian agreed. We have been paid to start it. It's a fine line of work to be expert in. If we do this perfectly, there will be continual demand for our services. Well, I don't like it all that much, the Spaniard said. Frankly, I wish you'd had refused. The offer was too high. I don't like killing a girl, the Spaniard said. God does it all the time. It doesn't bother him. Don't let it worry you. The Spaniard said, let's just tell her we're taking her away for ransom. The Turk agreed. She's so beautiful, and she'd go all crazy if she knew. She knows already, the Sicilian said. She's been awake for every word of this. How can you be sure? the Spaniard asked. The Sicilian senses all, the Sicilian said. Conceited, Buttercup thought. Yes, very conceited, the Sicilian thought. But for the first time, the Sicilian allowed himself a smile. All is well. We are miles ahead of anybody, and safe, safe, safe. No one could be following us yet, the Spaniard asked. No one, the Sicilian assured him. It would be inconceivable. Absolutely inconceivable? Absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable, the Sicilian reassured him. Why do you ask? No reason, the Spaniard replied. It's only that I just happened to look back and something's there. Something was indeed there. Less than a mile behind them, across the moonlight, was another sailing boat with a giant sail that billowed black in the night, and a single man at the tiller, a man in black. The Spaniard looked at the Sicilian. It must just be some local fisherman out for a pleasure cruise alone at night through shark infested waters. He is gaining on us, the Turk said. That is also inconceivable, the Sicilian said. Before I stole this boat we're in, I made many inquiries as to what was the fastest ship in all Florin Channel, and everyone agreed it was this one. Conceivable, believable, the giant thought, only he didn't dare say it out loud. Not to the Sicilian. He might have whispered it to Inigo late at night. He might have also whispered, Heavable, Thievable, Weavable, but that's as far as he got before the Sicilian started talking again. And that always meant that he had to pay very strict attention. Nothing angered the hunchback as quickly as catching Fezzik thinking. If he had found out Fezzik was making rhymes, he would have laughed and then found ways to make Fezzik suffer.
1: She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What?
0: Who can know when his world is going to change? Who can tell before it happens that every prior experience, all the years, were a preparation for nothing? My whole life really began with my father reading me the Morgenstern when I was ten. And long before I was ever married, I knew I was going to share it with my son. That's when I began to realize the problem. Morgenstern wasn't writing any children's books. He was writing a kind of satiric history on his country and the decline of the monarchy of Western civilization. But my father only read me the action stuff, the good parts. He never bothered with the serious side at all. Anyway, here's the good parts version. S. Morgenstern wrote it, and my father read it to me. And now I give it to you. The Sicilian had a dream. With his guile, plus the Turks' strength, plus the Spaniard's sword, they might become the most effective criminal organization in the civilized world, which is precisely what they became. But the hunchback was the leader. There was never doubt. Without him, Inigo knew where he would be, on his back begging wine in some alley entrance.
1: Whoever he is, he's too late!
0: There, the cliffs of insanity. And there they were rising straight and sheer from the water a thousand feet into the night. They provided the most direct route between Florin and Gilder, but no one had ever used them, sailing instead the long way, many miles around. Sail straight for the steepest part, the Sicilian commanded. Buttercup did not understand. Going up the cliffs could hardly be done, she thought, and no one ever mentioned secret passages through them. Yet there they were, sailing closer and closer to the mighty rocks, now surely less than a quarter mile away. The humpback bounded forward, and as the ship reached the cliff face, he jumped up and suddenly there was a rope in his hand. Buttercup stared in silent astonishment. The rope, thick and strong, seemed to travel all the way up the cliffs. As she watched, the Sicilian pulled at the rope again and again, and it held firm. It was attached to something at the top, a giant rock, a towering tree, something. Fast now, the Sicilian ordered. If he's following us, which of course is not within the realm of human experience, but if he is... We've got to reach the top and cut the rope off before he can climb up after us. And then everyone got busy. The Spaniard took a rope, tied Buttercup's hands and feet. The Turk raised a giant leg and stomped down on the center of the boat, which gave way immediately and began to sink. Then the Turk went to the rope and took it in his hands. Load me, the Turk said. The Spaniard lifted Buttercup and draped her body around the Turk's shoulders. Then he tied himself to the Turk's waist. Then the Sicilian hopped, clung to the Turk's neck the Turk began to climb. It was at least a thousand feet and he was carrying the three, but he was not worried. When it came to power, nothing worried him. When it came to reading, he got knots in the middle of his stomach, and when it came to writing, he broke out in a cold sweat. But strength had never been his enemy. His might lay in his arms. They had reached the top of the cliffs, and first the Sicilian jumped off, and then the Turk removed the princess. And as the Spaniard untied himself, he looked back over the cliffs. The man in black was no more than 300 feet away. The Sicilian untied the rope from its knots around an oak. The rope seemed almost alive, the greatest of all water serpents, heading at last for home. It whipped across the tops, spiraled into the moonlit channel. The Sicilian was roaring now, and he kept at it until the Spaniard had said, He did it. Did what? The humpback came, scurrying to the cliff edge. Release the rope in time, the Spaniard said. See? He pointed down the man in black was hanging in space, clinging to the sheer rock face seven hundred feet above the water. He can't hold on much longer, the Sicilian said. He has to fall soon. It was at that moment that the man in black began to climb. Not quickly, of course, and not without great effort, but still there was no doubt that he was, in spite of the sheerness of the cliffs, heading in an upward direction. Inconceivable, the Sicilian cried. The Spaniard whirled on him, Stop saying that word! The Sicilian advanced on the Spaniard now, his wild eyes glittering at the insubordination. We cannot take the risk of his seeing us with the princess, and therefore one of you must kill him. Shall I do it? the Turk wondered. The Sicilian shook his head. No, Fezzik, he said finally. I need your strength to carry the girl. Pick her up now and let us hurry along, he turned to the Spaniard. We'll be heading directly for the frontier of Gilder. Catch up as quickly as you can once he's dead. The Spaniard nodded. The Sicilian hobbled away. The Turk hoisted the princess, began following the humpback. The Spaniard waved, farewell, Fezzik. Farewell, Inigo, the Turk replied. And then he was gone, and the Spaniard was alone. Inigo hated waiting. So to make the time more pleasant, he pulled from the scabbard his great, his only, love, the six-fingered sword. How it danced in the moonlight. How glorious and true. Inigo brought it to his lips, and with all the fervor in his great Spanish heart, kissed the medal. In the mountains of central Spain, set high in the hills above Toledo, was the village of Arabella. There was no work, the dogs overran the streets, and there was never enough food. As to Inigo's personal life, he was always just a trifle hungry, he had no brothers or sisters, and his mother had died in childbirth. He was fantastically happy because of his father. Domingo Montoya made swords. If you wanted a fabulous sword, you went to Domingo Montoya. Inigo remembered exactly the moment it began. He was making lunch for them. His father always, from the time he was six, let him do the cooking. When a heavy knocking came on the hut door. Inside there, a voice boomed. Be quick about it. Inigo's father opened the door. Your servant, he said. You're a sword maker, came the booming voice. Of distinction? I have heard that this is true. Inigo crept up behind his father and peeked out. The booming voice belonged to a powerful man with dark hair and broad shoulders who sat upon an elegant brown horse. A nobleman, clearly, but Inigo could not tell the country. I am a great swordsman, but I cannot find a weapon to match my peculiarities, and therefore I am deprived of reaching my highest skills. What are these peculiarities you speak of? The noble held up his right hand. Domingo began to grow excited. The man had six fingers. You see, the noble began. Of course, Domingo interrupted. The balance of the sword is wrong for you because every balance has been conceived of for five. Clearly you understand the difficulties, the nobleman began. But Domingo had traveled where others' words could never reach him. Inigo had never seen his father so frenzied. The measurements, of course, each finger, and the circumference of the wrist, and the distance from the sixth nail to the index pad. And on and on he went till the noble dismounted and had to almost take him by the shoulders to quiet him. You will make me the greatest sword since Excalibur. I will beat my body into ruins for you. Perhaps I will fail, but no one will try harder. And payment? When you get the sword, then payment. I insist on leaving something on account. All right. One gold piece. Leave that. But do not bother me with money. When there is work, that needs beginning. Come back in a year, Domingo said. And with that he set to work. Such a year. Domingo slept only when he dropped from exhaustion. He ate only when Inigo would force him to. A year of the handle being right, but the balance being wrong of the balance being right but the cutting edge too dull, of the cutting edge sharpened but that threw the balance off again. Such a year. One night Inigo woke to find his father seated, staring, calm. Inigo followed the stare. The six-fingered sword was done. Even in the hut's darkness it glistened. At last, Domingo whispered. He could not take his eyes from the glory of the sword. After a lifetime, Inigo. Inigo. I am an artist. The big-shouldered nobleman did not agree. When he returned to purchase the sword, he merely looked at it a moment. Not worth waiting for, he said. You are disappointed? Domingo could scarcely get the words spoken. I'm not saying it's trash, you understand, the nobleman went on, but it's certainly not worth five hundred pieces of gold. I'll give you ten. It's probably worth that. Wrong, Domingo cried. It's not worth ten. It's not worth even one. Here, the gold piece is yours. You have lost nothing. He took back the sword and turned away. I'll take back the sword, the nobleman said. I didn't say I wouldn't take it. I only said I would pay what it was worth. Domingo whirled back, eyes bright. You quibbled. You haggled. Art is involved, and you saw only money. There is no more reason for you remaining here. Please go. The sword, the noble said. The sword belongs to my son, Domingo said. I give it to him now. It is forever his, Goodbye. You're a peasant and a fool, and I want my sword. You're an enemy of art, and I pity your ignorance, Domingo said. They were the last words he ever uttered. The noble killed him then with no warning. A flash of the nobleman's sword and Domingo's heart was torn to pieces. Inigo screamed. The village heard. Twenty men were at the door. The nobleman pushed his way through them. That man attacked me. He attacked me, and I defended myself. Now move from my way. It was lies, of course, and everyone knew it. But he was a noble, so what was there to do? They parted, and the nobleman mounted his horse. Coward! The nobleman whirled. Pig! Again the crowd parted. Inigo stood there, holding the six-fingered sword, repeating his words. Coward! PIG KILLER. Someone tend the babe before he oversteps himself, the noble said to the crowd. Inigo ran forward then, standing in front of the nobleman's horse, blocking the nobleman's path. He raised the six-fingered sword with both his hands and cried, I, Inigo Montoya, do challenge you, coward, pig, killer, ass, fool, to battle. Get out of my way. Move the infant. The infant is ten, and he stays, Inigo said. Enough of your family is dead for one day. Be content, said the noble. When you beg me for your breath, then I shall be contented. Dismount! The nobleman dismounted. Draw your sword. The nobleman unsheathed his killing weapon. I dedicate your death to my father, Inigo said. Begin. They began. It was no match, of course. Inigo was disarmed in less than a minute. But for the first fifteen seconds or so, the noble was uneasy, for even at the age of ten, Inigo's genius was there. Disarmed, Inigo stood very straight. He said not a word, begged nothing. I'm not going to kill you, the nobleman said, because you have talent and you're brave. But you're also lacking in manners. So I shall help you as you go through life by leaving you with a reminder that bad manners are to be avoided. And with that his blade flashed two times, and Inigo's face began to bleed. Two rivers of blood poured from his forehead to his chin, one crossing each cheek. Everyone watching knew it then. The boy was scarred for life. The nobleman replaced his sword, remounted, and rode on. For 10 years, Inigo studied to attain the rank of wizard in swordsmanship. He had it all carefully prepared in his mind. He would find the six-fingered man, he would go up to him, He would say simply, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. And then, oh then, the duel. He has beaten Inigo, the Turk said, not quite sure he wanted to believe it, but positive that the news was sad, he liked Inigo. They were hurrying along a mountainous path on the way to the Gilda Frontier, and Fezzik carrying Buttercup lightly on his shoulders. She was still tied hand and foot. "'I didn't hear you. Say it again,' the Sicilian called out, so Fezzik waited for the hunchback to catch up with him. "'See?' Fezzik pointed then. "'Far down at the bottom of the mountain path, a man in black could be seen running. Inigo was beaten. "'Inconceivable!' exploded the Sicilian. Fezzik never dared disagree with the hunchback. I'm so stupid, Fezzik nodded. Inigo has not lost to the man in black. He has defeated him, and to prove it, he has put on all the man in black's clothes and mask and hood and boots and gained eighty pounds. The Sicilian squinted down toward the running figure. Fool, he hurled back at the Turk. After all these years, can't you tell Inigo when you see him? That isn't Inigo! Fezzik put the princess down and ripped the ropes apart that bound her legs. Then he rubbed her ankles so she could walk. The Sicilian grabbed her immediately and yanked her away. Catch up with us quickly, the Sicilian said. Instructions, Fezzik called out, almost panicked. Finish him, finish him, the Sicilian was getting peeved. Succeed, since Inigo failed us. But I can't fence, I don't know how to fence. Your way, the Sicilian could barely control himself now. Oh yes, good, my way. Thank you, Vincini, Fezzik said to the hunchback, then summoning up his courage. I think I need a hint. Wait for him behind there, he pointed to a sharp bend in the mountain path, and crush his head like an eggshell, he pointed to the cannonball-sized rocks. I could do that, yes, Fezik nodded. He was marvelous at throwing heavy things. It just seems not very sportsmanlike, doesn't it? They engaged. Fezik let the man in black fiddle around for a bit, tested the man's strength, which was considerable for someone who wasn't a giant, Then, when he was quite sure that the man in black would not go to his maker embarrassed, Fezzik locked his arms tight around. Fezzik lifted and squeezed, and the man in black slipped free. I don't understand a thing that's happening, Fezzik thought. Could I be losing my strength? Suddenly he knew. He had not fought against one man in so long, he had all but forgotten how. He had been fighting groups and gangs and bunches for so many years that the idea of having but a simple opponent was slow in making itself known to him, and suddenly he readjusted his style to what it once had been. By that time, the man in black had him by the throat. The man in black was riding him, and his arms were locked across Fezzik's windpipe, one in front, one behind. Fezzik reached back, but the man in black was hard to grasp. By now, he had no air. Fezzik continued to struggle. He could feel a hollowness in his legs now. He could see the world beginning to pale, but he did not give up. He was the mighty Fezzik, lover of rhymes, and you did not give up, no matter what. Fezzik went to his knees. There is an instant between unconsciousness and death, and as the giant pitched onto the rocky path, that instant happened. And just before it happened, the man in black let go. Fezzik lay sprawled, faintly breathing. The man in black made his way back to where he had dropped his sword. He put it back on. Two down, and the hardest one to go. Prince Humperdinck was shaped like a barrel. His chest was a great barrel chest, his thighs mighty barrel thighs. He was not tall, but he weighed close to 250 pounds, brick hard. He walked like a crab, side to side, and probably if he had wanted to be a ballet dancer, he would have been doomed to a miserable life of endless frustration but he didn't want to be a ballet dancer. Hunting was his love. Prince Humperdinck built the Zoo of Death. It was underground. The prince picked the spot himself in the quietest, remotest corner of the castle grounds. And he decreed there were to be five levels, all with the proper needs for his individual enemies. On the first level, he put enemies of speed. On the second level, belonged the enemies of strength. The third level was for poisoners. The fourth level was the kingdom of the most dangerous, the enemies of fear. The fifth level was empty. The prince constructed it in the hopes of someday finding something worthy, something as dangerous and fierce and powerful as he was. And now it is down to you, and it is down to me. I understand completely what you're trying to do, the Sicilian said, You wish to keep the princess alive for ransom, whereas it is terribly important to me she stop breathing in the very near future. Has it occurred to you that I have gone to great effort and expense as well as personal sacrifice to reach this point, the man in black replied, and that if I fail now, I might get very angry? And if she stops breathing in the very near future, it is entirely possible that you will catch the same fatal illness? I have no doubt you could kill me. I cannot compete with you physically, and you are no match for my brains. You are that smart. There are no words to contain all my wisdom. I am so cunning, crafty, and clever, so filled with deceit, guile, and chicanery, as diabolical as I am vulpine, as tricky as I am untrustworthy. Well, I told you, there were not words invented yet to explain how great my brain is. In that case, said the man in black, I challenge you to a battle of wits." "'Vincini had to smile. "'For the princess?' "'Correct.' "'I accept,' cried Vincini. "'Begin the battle.' "'Pour the wine,' said the man in black. "'Vincini filled the two goblets with deep red liquid. "'The man in black pulled from his dark clothing "'a small packet and handed it to the hunchback. "'Open it and inhale, but be careful not to touch.' "'Vincini took the packet and followed instructions. "'I smell nothing.' "'The man in black took the packet again.' What you do not smell is called iocane powder. It is odorless, tasteless, dissolves immediately in any kind of liquid. It also happens to be the deadliest poison known to man. The man in black reached down for the goblets. He took them and turned away. Vincini cackled aloud in anticipation. The man in black busied himself a long moment. Then he turned again and with a goblet in each hand. Very carefully he put the goblet in his right hand in front of Vincini and put the goblet in his left hand across the kerchief from the hunchback. He sat down in front of the left-hand goblet, and dropped the empty Iocane packet by the cheese. "'Your guess,' he said. Where's the poison?' "'Guess!' Vincini cried. "'I don't guess. I think. I ponder. I deduce. Then I decide. But I never guess. You've beaten my Turk, which means you are exceptionally strong. And exceptionally strong men are convinced that they are too powerful ever to die too powerful even for Iocane poison. So you could have put it in your cup, trusting on your strength to save you. Thus I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied, because he studied many years for his excellence. And if you can study, you are clearly more than simply strong. You are aware of how mortal we all are, and you do not wish to die, so you would have kept the poison as far from yourself as possible, therefore I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just trying to make me give something away with all this chatter, said the man in black angrily. Well, it won't work. You'll learn nothing from me. That I promise you. I have already learned everything from you, said the Sicilian. I know where the poison is. Only a genius could have deduced as much.' "'How fortunate for me that I happen to be one,' said the hunchback, "'growing more and more amused now. "'Shall we drink, then? "'Pick. Choose. Quit dragging it out. "'You don't know. You couldn't know.' "'The Sicilian only smiled at the outburst. "'Then a strange look crossed his features "'as he pointed off behind the man in black. "'What in the world can that be?' he asked. "'The man in black turned around and looked. "'I don't see anything. "'Oh, well, I could have sworn I saw something, no matter.' The Sicilian began to laugh. I don't understand what's so funny, said the man in black. Tell you in a minute, said the hunchback, but first let's drink. And he picked up his own wine goblet. The man in black picked up the one in front of him. They drank. You guessed wrong, said the man in black. "'You only think I guessed wrong,' said the Sicilian, his laughter ringing louder. "'That's what's so funny! I switched glasses when your back was turned, fool! "'You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. "'The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, "'but only slightly less well-known is this. "'Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line!' "'He was quite cheery until the Iocane powder took effect. "'The man in black stepped quickly over the corpse, "'then roughly ripped the blindfold from the princess's eyes.'" I heard everything that hap. Buttercup began, and then she said, Oh, because she had never been next to a dead man before. You killed him, she whispered finally. I let him die laughing, said the man in black. Pray I do as much for you. He lifted her, slashed her bonds away, put her on her feet. Buttercup looked at him. He was terrifying to her, masked and hooded and dangerous. His voice was strained, rough. Who are you? she asked. "'I am no one to be trifled with,' replied the man in black. "'That is all you ever need know.' And with that he yanked her upright. They proceeded along the mountain path to an open space. The man in black stopped then. There were a million stars fighting for prominence, and for a moment he seemed to be intent on nothing less than studying them all, as Buttercup watched his eyes flick from constellation to constellation behind his mask. Then, with no warning, he spun off the path, heading into wild terrain, pulling her behind him, She tumbled. He pulled her to his feet. Again she fell. Again he righted her. I cannot move this quickly. You can, and you will, or you will suffer greatly. Do you think I could make you suffer greatly? Buttercup nodded. Then run, cried the man in black, and he broke into a run himself, flying across the rocks in the moonlight, pulling the princess behind him. Where do you take me? Buttercup gasped when he gave her a chance to rest. Surely even someone as arrogant as you cannot expect me to give an answer. "'You have confidence that your dearest love will save you, do you? "'I never said he was my dearest love, and yes, he will save me. "'That I know. "'You admit to me that you do not love your husband-to-be. "'Fancy, an honest woman. "'You're a rare specimen, Highness. "'The prince and I have never from the beginning lied to each other. "'He knows I do not love him. "'Are not capable of love is what you mean.' "'I am very capable of love,' Buttercup said.' I have loved more deeply than a killer like yourself can possibly imagine. He slapped her. That is the penalty for lying, highness. But I spoke the truth. I did. I... Buttercup saw his hand rise a second time, so she stopped quickly, fell dead silent. Then they began to run again. It was close to dawn when they first saw the armada. They were running along the edge of a towering ravine. When they stopped, Buttercup sank down to rest. The man in black stood silent over her. "'Your love comes, not alone,' he said then. "'The man in black pointed back the way they had come. "'Buttercup stared, and as she did, "'the waters of Florin Channel seemed as filled with light "'as the sky was filled with stars. "'He must have ordered every ship in Florin after you,' "'the man in black said. "'May I please tell you something, Highness? "'You're very cold.' "'I'm not. Very cold and very young, "'and if you live I think you'll turn to hoarfrost.' Why do you pick at me? I have come to terms with my life, and that is my affair. I am not cold, I swear, but I have decided certain things. It is best for me to ignore emotion. I have not been happy dealing with it. I loved once, Buttercup said after a moment. It worked out badly. Another rich man? Yes, he left you for a richer woman. No, poor, poor, and it killed him. Were you sorry? Did you feel pain? Admit that you felt nothing. Do not mock my grief. I died that day. The armada began to fire signal cannons. The explosions echoed through the mountains. The man in black stared as the ships began to change formation. And while he was watching the ships, Buttercup shoved him with all her strength remaining. For a moment, the man in black teetered at the ravine edge. His arms spun like windmills fighting for balance. They swung and gripped the air, and then he began to slide. Down went the man in black, stumbling and torn and reaching out to stop his descent, but the ravine was too steep, and nothing could be done. Finally he rested far below, silent and without motion. You can die too for all I care, she said, and then she turned away. Words followed her, whispered from far, weak, and warm and familiar. As you wish. Dawn in the mountains, Buttercup turned back to the source of the sound and stared down, as in the first light the man in black struggled to remove his mask. Oh, my sweet Wesley, Buttercup said, what have I done to you now? From the bottom of the ravine there came only silence. Buttercup hesitated not for a moment, Down she went after him. She fell fast and she fell hard. But that did not matter, since she would have gladly dropped a thousand feet onto a bed of nails if Wesley had been waiting at the bottom. Tossed and spinning, crashing, torn, all out of control, she rolled and twisted and plunged, cartwheeling toward what was left of her beloved. At this point in the story, my wife wants it known that she feels violently cheated not being allowed the scene of reconciliation on the ravine floor between the lovers. My reply to her is simply this, A, each of God's beings from the lowliest on up is entitled to at least a few moments of genuine privacy. B, what actually was spoken while moving enough to those involved at the actual time flattens like toothpaste when transferred to paper for later reading. My dove, my only bliss, bliss, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. C, Nothing of importance in an expository way was related, because every time Buttercup began, tell me about yourself, Wesley quickly cut her off with, later, beloved, now's not the time. So he and Buttercup fled along, both of them very much aware that gigantic forces were following behind them, and undoubtedly cutting into their lead. Wesley, naturally enough, was considerably ahead of Buttercup with the realization that they were heading into the fire swamp. Whether it was a touch of sulfur riding a breeze or a flick of yellow flame, far ahead in the daylight, he could not say for sure. With any luck at all, he said, we should soon be safely in the fire swamp. Buttercup heard his speech, of course, but she did not, she did not take it well. Buttercup stared at the fire swamp. As a child, she had once spent an entire nightmared year convinced that she was going to die there. Now she cannot move another step. The giant trees blackened the ground ahead of her. From every part came the sudden flames. You cannot ask it of me, she said. I must. I once dreamed I would die here. So did I, so did we all. Were you eight that year? I was. Eight, six, I can't remember. Wesley took her hand. She could not move. Must we? Wesley took her in his arms. Child, sweet child, I have a knife, I have a sword. I did not come across the world to lose you now. Buttercup was searching somewhere for a sufficiency of courage. Evidently she found it in his eyes. Hand in hand they moved into the shadows of the fire swamp. Wesley led the way. Buttercup stayed just behind and they made from the outset very good time. The main thing she realized was to forget your childhood dreams. For the fire swamp was bad, but it wasn't that bad. The sudden burst of flames were easily avoided because just before they struck, there was a deep kind of popping sound clearly coming from the vicinity where the flames would then appear. "'We must get through the fire swamp,' Wesley began, for one and good and simple reason. On the far end of the fire swamp is the mouth of the Giant Eel Bay, and anchored far out in the deepest waters of that bay is the great ship Revenge. The revenge is the sole property of the Dread Pirate Roberts. The man who killed you, Buttercup said? That man? The one who broke my heart? The Dread Pirate Roberts? Took your life. That was the story I was told. Quite correct, Wesley said. And that ship is our destination. You know the Dread Pirate Roberts? You're friendly with such a man? It's a little more than that, Wesley said. I am the Dread Pirate Roberts. I fail to see how that is possible since he has been marauding for twenty years and you only left me three years ago. I myself am often surprised at life's little quirks, Wesley admitted. Did he in fact capture you when you were sailing for the Carolinas? He did. His ship Revenge captured the ship I was on, the Queen's Pride. And we were all to be put to death. But Roberts did not kill you? Clearly. Why? I cannot say for sure, but I think it was because I asked him please not to. The please, I suspect, aroused his interest. At any rate, he held off with his sword long enough to ask, why should I make an exception of you? And I explained my mission, and how I had to get to America to get money to reunite me with the most beautiful woman ever reared by man, namely you. And if you will let me live, I said, I will be your personal valet and slave for five full years." and if I ever once complain or cause you anger, you may chop my head off, then and there, and I will die with praise for your fairness on my lips. What happened, Buttercup urged. Go on. At the end of one year, my captain said to me, Enough of this valet business, Wesley. From now on, you are my second-in-command. I'm going to retire soon, Wesley, and the revenge will be yours. He agreed to let me assist him in the next few captures and see how I liked it, which I did. Not only did I like it, but it turned out I was talented as well. So talented that Robert said to me one April morning, Wesley, the next ship is yours. Let's see how you do. That afternoon, we spotted a fat Spanish beauty loaded for Madrid. I sailed up close. They were in a panic. Who is it, their captain cried. Wesley, I told them. Never heard of you, he answered. And with that, they opened fire. Disaster. They had no fear of me at all. I was so flustered I did everything wrong, and soon they got away. Roberts called me to his cabin. Buck up, he told me. What I am about to tell you I have never said before, and you must guard it closely. I am not the Dread Pirate Roberts, he said. My name is Ryan. I inherited this ship from the previous Dread Pirate Roberts, just as you will inherit it from me. I confessed my confusion. It's really very simple, Ryan explained. After several years, the original Roberts was so rich he wanted to retire. Clooney was his friend and first mate, so he gave the ship to Clooney, who had an identical experience to yours. The first ship he attempted to board nearly blew him out of the water. So Roberts, realizing that the name was the thing that inspired the necessary fear, sailed the revenge to port, changed crews entirely, and Clooney told everyone he was a dread pirate, Roberts. And who was to know he was not? When Clooney retired rich, he passed the name to Commerbund. Commerbund to me, and I, Felix Raymond Ryan, Now dub thee, Wesley, the Dread Pirate Roberts." Wesley smiled at Buttercup. So now you know. And you should also realize why it is foolish to be afraid. But I am afraid. It will all be happy at the end. Consider. A little over three years ago, you were a milkmaid and I was a farm boy. Now you're almost a queen and I rule uncontested on the water. Surely such individuals were never intended to die in a fire swamp. How can you be so sure? Well, because we're together hand in hand, in love. Oh, yes, Buttercup said. I keep forgetting that. Both her words and her tone were trifle standoffish, something Wesley surely would have noticed had not a R.O.U.S., a rodent of unusual size, attacked him from the tree branch, sinking its giant teeth into his unprotected shoulder, forcing him to earth in a very unexpected spurt of blood. The other two that had been following launched their attack then, too, ignoring Buttercup driving forward with all their hungry strength to Wesley's bleeding shoulder. The rats struggled with each other to reach Wesley's wound. Their enormous front teeth tore at the unprotected flesh of his left shoulder. And he had no idea if Buttercup was already half-devoured. He only knew that if he didn't do something desperate right then and right there, she soon would be. So he intentionally rolled his body into a spurt of flame. His clothes began to burn, that he expected, but more important, the rats shied away from the heat and the flames for just an instant, but that was just enough for him to reach and throw his long knife into the heart of the nearest beast. The other two turned instantly on their own kind and began eating it while it was still screaming. Wesley took Buttercup's hand, and again they started to move. It was nearly dusk when they at last saw the great ship Revenge far out in the deepest part of the bay. Wesley, still within the confines of the fire swamp, sank beaten to his knees, for between him and his ship were more than a few inconveniences. From the north sailed in half the great armada, from the south now the other half, a hundred mounted horsemen, armored and armed, in front of them the count, and out alone in front of all, the four whites with the prince astride the leader. Wesley stood. We took too long in crossing, the fault is mine." I accept your surrender, the prince said. Wesley held Buttercup's hand. No one is surrendering. Surrender, the prince shouted. Death first, Wesley roared. Will you promise not to hurt him? Buttercup whispered. What was that, the prince said. What was that, Wesley said. Buttercup took a step forward and said, If we surrender freely and without struggle, if life returns to what it was one dusk ago, will you swear not to hurt this man? Prince Humperdinck raised his right hand. I swear on the grave of my soon-to-be-dead father and on the soul of my already-dead mother that I shall not hurt this man, and if I do, may I never hunt again, though I live a thousand years. Buttercup turned to Wesley. There, she said, you can't ask for more than that, and that is the truth. The truth, said Wesley, is that you would rather live with your prince than die with your love. I would rather live than die, I admit it. We were talking of love, madam. There was a long pause. Then Buttercup said it. I can live without love. And with that she left Wesley alone. Prince Humperdinck watched her as she began the long cross to him. When we are out of sight, he said to Count Rugen, take that man in black and put him in the fifth level of the zoo of death. Buttercup went away with him. Wesley watched it all. He stood silently at the edge of the fire swamp. He had been bitten, cut, gone without rest, had assaulted the cliffs of insanity, had saved and taken lives. He had risked his world, and now it was walking away from him, hand in hand with a ruffian prince. Then Buttercup was gone, out of sight. Wesley sagged. Come, sir, Count Rugen approached. We must get you safely to your ship. ''We are both men of action,'' Wesley replied. ''Lies do not become us.'' ''Well spoken,'' said the Count, and with one sudden swing he clubbed Wesley into insensitivity. Wesley fell like a beaten stone, his last conscious thought being of the Count's right hand. It was six-fingered, and Wesley could never quite remember having encountered that deformity before. Wesley awoke, chained in a giant cage his shoulder was beginning to fester from the gnawing and digging that the R.O.U.S.'s had done into his flesh. He ignored his discomfort momentarily to try and adjust to his surroundings. Shortly after his return to consciousness, an albino appeared, bloodless, with skin as pale as dying birch. The albino held a tray which carried many things, bandages and food, healing powders and brandy. Where are we from Wesley?' "'A shrug from the albino. "'Who knows I'm here?' whispered. "'I know. They know. "'They?' shrug. "'The prince the account, you mean?' nod. "'And that is all?' nod. "'Am I to die, then?' shrug. "'Wesley closed his eyes. "'There was pain coming, and he had to be ready for it. "'He had to prepare his brain.' He had to get his mind controlled and safe from their efforts so that they could not break him. He would not let them break him. That night, they began to torture Wesley. The Count set fire to Wesley's hands. Nothing permanent or disabling. He just dipped Wesley's hands in oil and brought a candle close enough to set things bubbling. When Wesley had screamed, No one, no one, no one on my life! A sufficient number of times, the count dipped Wesley's hands in water, and he and the prince left via the underground entrance. Wesley suffered not at all throughout. His screaming was totally a performance to please them. The minute the count brought the candle close, Wesley raised his eyes to the ceiling, dropped his eyelids over them, and in a state of deep and steady concentration, he took his brain away. That was the secret. If you could take your brain away from the present, and send it to where it could contemplate skin like wintry cream, well, let them enjoy themselves. When there were fifty days to go before the wedding, Buttercup knocked on the door to Prince Humperdinck's chambers. She entered when he bid her to. I see trouble, he said. You look very ill. And so she did. Beautiful, of course, still that, but in no way well. It comes to this, Buttercup began, In the fire swamp, I made the worst mistake in all the world. I love Wesley. I always have. It seems I always will. I did not know this when you came to me. Please believe what I am about to say. When you said that I must marry you or face death, I answered, kill me. I meant that. I mean this now, too. If you say I must marry you in 50 days, I will be dead by morning. The prince was literally stunned. After a long moment he knelt by Buttercup's chair and in his gentlest voice started to speak. I admit that when we first became engaged there was to be no love involved. But surely you must have noticed in this last month of parties and festivities a certain warming of my attitude. Have you considered the possibility that he might not now want any longer to marry you? Until that moment she had not. Here he is, off sailing somewhere with the dread pirate, Roberts. He has a month to survive the emotional scars you dealt him. What if he wants now to remain single? Or worse, what if he has found another? I think, sweetest child, that we should strike a bargain, you and I. If Wesley wants to marry you still, bless you both. If, for reasons unpleasant to mention, his pride will not let him, then you will marry me, as planned, and be the Queen of Florin, He couldn't be married, I'm sure. Not my Wesley, she looked at the prince. But how can I find out? What about this? You write him a letter telling him everything. We'll make four copies. I'll take my four fastest ships and order them off in all directions. Whichever of my ships finds him will run the white flag of truce, deliver your letter, and Wesley can decide. I think... I'm not sure, but I definitely think that... "'This is the most generous decision I have yet heard. "'Do me this favor in return, then. "'Until we know Wesley's intentions one way or another, "'let us continue as we have "'so the festivities will not be halted. "'And if I seem too fond of you, "'remember I cannot help myself.' "'There was no doubt whatsoever in his mind "'that he was going to seem too fond of her in the days ahead, "'because when she died of murder on their wedding night, "'it was crucial that all Florin realized the depth of his love.' Since then, no one would dare hesitate to follow him in the revenge he was to launch against Gilder. At first, when he hired the Sicilian, he was convinced it was best that someone else do her in. And when the man in black had somehow materialized to spoil his plans, the prince came close to going insane with rage. But now his basically optimistic nature had reasserted itself. The people were infatuated with Buttercup now, as they had never been before her kidnapping. And when he announced from his castle balcony that she had been murdered, he already saw the scene in his mind. He would arrive just too late to save her from strangling, but soon enough to see the Gildarian soldiers leaping from the window of his bedroom to the soft ground below. When he made that speech to the masses on the 500th anniversary of his country, well, there wouldn't be a dry eye on the square. And although he was just the least bit perturbed, since he had never actually killed a woman before with his bare hands, there was a first time for everything. Besides, if you wanted something done right, you did it yourself. Prince Humperdinck realized just 12 days before his wedding day that he had neglected to set in motion the crucial Gilder section of his plan, so he called Yellen to the castle late one night. Yellen was chief of all enforcement in Florence City. Your Highness, Yellen said. He was small but crafty with darting eyes and slippery hands. Prince Humperdinck came out from behind his desk. I have heard from unimpeachable sources that men from Gilder have of late begun to infiltrate our thieves' quarter. They are disguised as Florinese, and I am worried. I want the thieves' quarter emptied and every villain jailed until I am safely on my honeymoon. Yellen bowed and started to leave. And that was when the scream began. Yellen had heard many things in his life, but nothing quite so eerie as this. It was actually a wild dog on the first level of the zoo, but no wild dog had ever shrieked like that before but then no wild dog had ever been put in the machine. Count Rugen left the zoo and ran toward Prince Humperdinck's chambers. When Yellen was gone and they were alone, the Count bowed to his majesty. The machine, he said at last, works. When the Count appeared with the machine, Wesley was not particularly perturbed. As a matter of fact, he had no idea what the Count was bringing with him into the giant cage. As a matter of absolute fact, the Count was bringing nothing. It was the albino who was doing the actual work, making trip after trip with thing after thing. "'This is the machine,' the Count said when they were alone. "'I've spent eleven years constructing it. "'As you can tell, I'm rather excited and proud.' "'But Wesley, as the lever moved, took his brain away. "'And when the machine began, "'Wesley was stroking her autumn-colored hair "'and touching her skin of wintry cream, "'and, and, and then his world exploded "'because the cups were everywhere, "'and before they had punished his body but left his brain.' only not the machine. The machine reached everywhere. His brain slid away, slid far from love into the deep vault of despair, down through the house of agony into the county of pain. Inside and out, Wesley's world was ripping apart, and he could do nothing but crack along with it. The Count turned off the machine then, and as he picked up his notebooks, he said, as you no doubt know, the concept of the suction pump is centuries old. Well, basically, that's all this is, except instead of sucking water, I'm sucking life. I've just sucked away one year of your life. Later, I'll set the dial higher, certainly to two or three, perhaps even to five. Theoretically, five should be five times more severe than what you've just endured, so please be specific in your answers. Tell me now, honestly, how do you feel? In humiliation and suffering and frustration and anger, and anguish so great it was dizzying, Wesley cried like a baby. Interesting, said the Count, and carefully noted it down. The conquest of the thieves' quarter began. Yellen worked long and hard at it each day, but the thieves' quarter was a mile square, so there was much to do. Thirty-six hours before the sunset wedding, there were half a dozen holdouts left in the thieves' quarter. Yellen gathered the best of the brute squad and led him into the quarter for what simply had to be the final foray. Is that everyone, then? Yellen asked, as various brutes were visible, leaving the thieves' quarter, pulling various wagons. I think there's still the fencer with the brandy, the noisy one began. See, they tried getting him out yesterday, but I can't be bothered with a drunk. Get him out of here and do it now, both of you. Take that wagon with you and be quick. This quarter must be locked and deserted by sundown. We're going, we're going, the noisy one replied. And he hurried off, letting the quiet one bring the wagon. They tried getting this fencer yesterday, some of the standard enforcers, but it, it seems he has certain sword skills that make him wary. But I think I have a trick that'll work. The quiet one hurried along behind, dragging the wagon. Stay with the wagon, the noisy one added, and then whispered, Here comes my trick. With that, he walked alone around the corner and stared ahead at the skinny fellow sitting clutching the brandy bottle on the stoop. Ho there, friend, the noisy one said. I'm not moving. Keep your hoe there, said the brandy drinker. Hear me through, please. I have been sent by Prince Humperdinck himself, who is in need of entertainment. Tomorrow is our country's 500th anniversary, and the dozen greatest tumblers and fencers and entertainers are at this very moment competing. The finest pair will compete personally tomorrow for the new bride and groom. If you like, I, at great personal sacrifice, will rush you to the fencing contest, where if you're as good as I'm told, you might have the honor of entertaining the royal couple tomorrow. The Spaniard managed to stand. He unsheathed his sword and flashed it a few times across the morning. I am waiting for Vincini. Meany. I'm not mean. I'm just following the rule. Cruel. Not cruel. Not mean. Can't you understand? I'm... And here his voice trailed off for a moment as he squinted. Then quietly he said, Fezzik? From behind the noisy one, the quiet one said, "'Who's Sezick?" Inigo took a step from his stoop, trying desperately to make his eyes focus through the brandy. "'Sezik? Is that a joke you made?' The quiet one said, "'Played.' Inigo gave a cry and started staggering forward. "'Fezik, it's you!' "'True!' And he reached out, grabbed Inigo just before he stumbled, brought him back to an upright position. "'Splat!' "'Fezik dumped the noisy brute into the wagon,' then hurried back to Inigo, whom he had left leaning propped against a building. "'It's just so good to see you,' Fezzik said then. "'Oh, it is, it it is, but—' Inigo's voice was winding steadily down now. "'I'm too weak for surprises.' Were the last sounds he got out before he fainted from fatigue and brandy and no food. Fezzik hoisted him up with one arm, took the wagon in the other, and hurried to an empty house in the thieves' quarter." The unexpected smell of hot food brought Inigo around, and he lay in bed, eating every bite Fezzik fed him. You'll be as strong as ever by sundown, Fezzik promised. The six-fingered man is named Count Rugen, and he's here right now in Florence City. The man in black, did he get by you? Yes, fairly, too. Strength against strength. Then it was he that killed Vincini? That is my belief. All right, Vincini is dead, enough of that. Tell me briefly where the six-fingered Rugen is so I may kill him. That may not be so easy, Inigo, because the count is with the prince, and the prince is in this castle, and he has pledged not to leave it until after his wedding, and all the entrances but the main one are sealed for safety, and the main doors are guarded by twenty men. And then Inigo was up, blazing about the kitchen, and for the first time his fingers were snapping with excitement. I need the man in black. A. I need to reach Count Rugen to at last avenge my father. B, I cannot plan on how to reach Count Rugen. C, Vincini could have planned it for me, but C prime, Vincini is unavailable. However, D, the man in black outplanned Vincini, so therefore E, the man in black can get me to Count Rugen. It was dusk when they began their search blindly through all of Florence City. Dusk, a day before the wedding. It was dusk when Buttercup went to see the prince. Beloved, he said, come in. A moment more is all I need. And he turned back to Yellen, who was with him. Look at her, Yellen, my bride-to-be. Has any man ever been so blessed? The wedding is tomorrow sunset. My bride and I will ride my whites to Florin Channel, surrounded by all your enforcers. There we will board a ship and begin our long-awaited honeymoon, surrounded by every ship in the Florin Armada. Every ship but four, Buttercup corrected. He blinked at her a moment in silence. Then he said, blowing her a kiss, but discreetly so Yellen couldn't see. Yes, yes, how forgetful I am. Every ship but four, he turned back to Yellen. But in his blink, in that following silence, Buttercup had seen it all. The four ships were never sent, Buttercup said. Don't bother lying to me anymore. Whatever was done was done for your own good, sweet pudding. It doesn't matter whether you sent the ships or not. Wesley will come for me. You're a silly girl. Now go to your room. Yes, I am a silly girl. And yes, again, I will go to my room. And you are a coward with a heart filled with nothing but fear. Prince had to laugh. The greatest hunter in the world, and you say I am a coward? I do, I do indeed. I think you hunt only to reassure yourself that you are not what you are, the weakest thing ever to walk the earth. He will come for me, and then we will be gone and you will be helpless for all your hunting, because Wesley and I are joined by the bond of love, and you cannot track that, not with a thousand bloodhounds, and you cannot break it, not with a thousand swords. Humpeting screamed toward her then, ripping at her autumn hair, yanking her from her feet, and down the long curving corridor to her room, where he tore that door open and threw her inside and locked her there and started running for the underground entrance to the zoo of death, and down he plunged. And when he threw the door of the fifth-level cage open, even Count Rugen was startled at the purity of whatever the emotion was that reflected in the prince's eyes. The prince moved to Wesley. She loves you, the prince cried. She loves you still, and you love her. So think of that. Think of this, too. In all this world, you might have been happy, genuinely happy. Not one couple in a century has that chance. Not really, no matter what the storybooks say. But you could have had it and so I think no one will ever suffer a loss as great as you." And with that he grabbed the dial and pushed it all the way forward, and the count cried, "'Not to twenty. But by then it was too late. The death scream rose into the night. "'I don't like that sound,' Fezzik said, his skin for the moment cold. Inigo grabbed the giant, and the words began pouring out. Fezik, "'Fezzik, Fezik, that is the sound of ultimate suffering. I know that sound. That was the sound in my heart when Count Rugen slaughtered my father and I saw him fall. The man in black makes it now. You think that's him? Who else has cause for ultimate suffering this celebration night? And with that, he started to follow the sound. The albino came out, pulled the cups from the corpse, decided to burn the body on the garbage pyre behind the castle, which meant a wheelbarrow. He finally got the barrow out and was just passing the false and deadly supposed main entrance to the zoo, When I'm having the devil's own trouble tracking that scream was spoken to him, and the albino whirled to find, there, there in the castle grounds, a blade-thin stranger with a sword in his hand. The sword suddenly flicked its way to the albino's throat. Did the scream come from that place? The fellow indicated the main entrance. Nod. I need this man, so be quick. He is on the bottom level, five levels down. Quiet him a while, Fezzik. From behind him, the albino was aware of a giant shadow moving. Funny, he thought, the last thing he remembered. I thought that was a tree. And so, with an urgency that would soon turn to deep regret, Inigo and Fezzik approached the zoo of death. Quite a bizarre place, Inigo said, moving past several large cages in which were cheetahs and hummingbirds and other swift things. At the end of the hall, there was another door with a sign above it saying, To Level Two. They opened the door and saw a flight of stairs leading very steeply down. Careful, Inigo said. Stay close to me and watch your balance. They started toward the second level. If I tell you something, will you promise not to laugh at me or mock me or be mean to me, Fezzik asked. My word, Inigo nodded. I'm just scared to pieces, Fezzik said. Be sure it ceases, Inigo said right back. Oh, that's a wonderful rhyme. Some other time, Inigo said, making another feeling quite bright about the whole thing. The staircase was straight and very long, but eventually they reached the end of it. Another corridor lined with cages, big ones, though, and inside great baying hippos, and a twenty-foot alligator thrashing angrily in shallow water. We must hurry, Inigo said, picking up the pace, much as we might like to dawdle. And he half ran toward a sign that said, To Level Three. Inigo opened the door and looked down, and Fezzik peered over his shoulder. Hmm, Inigo said. He started down the curving stairs, Fezzik following, and as the door closed behind them, two things happened. One, the door quite clearly locked. Two, out went the candles on the high walls. Don't be frightened, Inigo screamed. I'm not, I'm not, Fezzik screamed right back, and then above his heartbeat he managed, What are we going to do? Look, we can't go back, and we certainly don't want to stay here, so we just must keep on going as we were before these little things happened. Any serious snake enthusiast would admit, whatever his schooling, that the Arabian Garstini, though shorter than the python and lighter than the anaconda, was quicker and more ravenous than either. And Prince Humperdinx was not only remarkable for its speed and agility, it was also kept in a permanent state, just verging on the outskirts of starvation. So the first coil came like lightning as it dropped from above them, and pinioned their hands so the fist and sword were useless, and the second coil imprisoned their arms. And do something, Inigo cried. I can't, I'm caught, you do something. Fight it, Fezik. It's too strong for me. Nothing's too strong for you. The third coil was done now, around the upper shoulders, and the fourth coil, the final coil, involved the throat. Inigo whispered in terror because he could hear the beast breathing now, could actually feel its breath. Fight it, I'm, I'm... Fezik trembled with fear and whispered, Forgive me, Inigo. Oh, Fezzik, Fezzik. What? I had such rhymes for you. What rhymes? The fourth coil was finished. Inigo, what rhymes? Silence. Snake breath. Inigo, I want to know the rhymes before I die. Inigo, tell me the rhymes, Fezik said, and by now he was very frustrated, and more than that, he was spectacularly angry, and one arm came clear of one coil, and that made it a bit less of a chore to fight free of the second coil, and his hands grabbed toward the snake breath and he gave it a smash against the wall, and the snake hissed and spit, but the fourth call was looser. So Fezzik smashed it again, and when the snake was dead, Inigo said, Actually, I had no specific rhymes in mind. I, I just had to do something to get you into action. You lied to me is what you're saying. My only friend in all my life turns out to be a liar. He started tromping down the stairs. Inigo stumbled after him. Fezzik reached the door at the bottom and threw it open and slammed it with Inigo just managing to slip inside before the door crashed shut. It locked immediately. At the end of this corridor, the to the level four sign was clearly visible, and Fezzik hurried toward it. Stop, Inigo said. At least examine where we're going. It was a straight staircase, but completely dark. The opening at the far end was invisible. It can't be as bad as where we've been, Fezik snapped, and down he went. In a way, he was right. For Inigo, bats were never the ultimate nightmare. Oh, he was afraid of them like everybody else and he would run and scream if they came near in his mind though hell was not bat infested but fezzik was a turkish boy and people claim the fruit bat from indonesia is the biggest in the world try telling that to a turk sometime try telling that to anyone who has heard his mother scream here come the king bats followed by the poisonous fluttering of wings here come the king bats fezzik screamed And he was, quite literally, as he stood halfway down the dark steps, paralyzed with fear. And behind him now, doing his best to fight the darkness, came Inigo. And he had never heard that tone before, not from Fezzik. And Inigo didn't want bats in his hair either, but it wasn't worth that kind of fright. So he started to say, what's so terrible about King Bats? But what was all he had time for before Fezzik cried, rabies, rabies! And that was all Inigo needed to know, and he yelled, down Fezzik! as the fluttering grew louder, and with all the strength he slammed the giant on the shoulder, hollering, down! Be still, Inigo commanded. And that was the last sound he made, because he needed his ears now, and he tilted his head toward the flutter, the great sword firm in his right hand, the deadly point circling slowly in the air. Come on, Inigo was about to say, but there was no need, because with a rush of wings he had expected, and a high long shriek he had not, the first king bat swooped down at him. The six-fingered sword drove through like butter. They were coming at him from two sides. Inigo knew he was not about to lose this fight, and from his throat came the words, I am Inigo Montoya, and still the wizard. Come for me. And when he heard three of them fluttering, he wished he had just been a little bit more modest, but it was too late for that. And now there were seven King Bats, and his sword completely out of balance. And that would have been the bad thing, except for one important aspect. The fluttering was done. Some giant you are, Inigo said then, and he stepped over Fezzik and hurried down the rest of the darkened stairs. They turned the knob on the door at the bottom of the black stairs and stepped onto the fourth level. They started toward the sign that said, To Level Five, passing strange cages. This is the worst yet, Inigo said. Then he jumped back because behind a pale glass case, a blood eagle was actually eating what looked like an arm. Hurry, Inigo said. They opened the door and looked down toward the fifth level. The door they opened had no lock, so it could not trap them. The stairs were all brightly lit, and the stairs were absolutely straight, and it wasn't a long flight at all. And there was nothing inside. It was bright and clean and totally, without the least doubt, empty. Looks all right, Fezzik said. No, it's supposed to. That's to fool us. Whatever we've gotten by before, this must be worse. But there's nothing to see, Inigo. Inigo nodded. That's why I'm so frightened. He took another step down toward the final, ornate green-handled door. The green-speckled recluse doesn't destroy as quickly as the stonefish. But gram for gram, nothing in the universe comes close to the green-speckled recluse. Among other spiders, compared with the green-speckled recluse, the Black Widow was a rag doll. Prince Humperdinck's recluse lived behind the ornate green handle on the bottom door. She rarely moved unless the handle moved. Then she struck like lightning. If you were Fezzik and you hadn't much brain power and you found yourself four stories underground in a zoo of death looking for a man in black that you really didn't think was down there, what did you do? If you were Fezzik, you panicked. So Fezzik did what he always did in a panic situation. He bolted. He just yelled and jumped for the door and slammed it open with his body, never even bothering with the niceties of turning the pretty green handle. And as the door gave behind his strength, He kept right on running until he came to the giant cage, and there, inside and still, lay the man in black. At five o'clock, Max was in the basement sipping coffee, remembering about the pill. I think I messed up the amounts, he thought. Didn't they want an hour? When I doubled the recipe, I didn't do enough. He didn't think it would work over 40 minutes. The man in black was nearly stiff when Fezzik reached the castle wall. How long do you think we'll have to wait before we know if the miracle's on or not? Your guess is as good as mine, Inigo said. Get his mouth as wide open as you can and tilt his head back a little, and we'll just drop it in and see. Fezzik worked at the dead man's mouth a while, got it the way Inigo said, tilted the neck perfect the first time, and Inigo knelt directly above the cavity, dropped the pill down, and as it hit the throat, he heard, Couldn't beat me alone, you dastards! You're alive, Fezzik cried. The man in black sat immobile like a ventriloquist dummy, just his mouth moving. That is perhaps the most childishly obvious remark I have ever come across. But what can you expect from a strangler? Why won't my arms move? You've been dead, Inigo explained. And we're not strangling you, Fezzik explained. We were just getting the pill down. The resurrection pill, Inigo explained. I bought it from Miracle Max and it works for 60 minutes. "'What happens after 60 minutes? Do I die again?' "'It wasn't 60 minutes. He just thought it was. "'Actually, it was 40, "'only they had used up one already in conversation, "'so it was down to 39. "'We don't know. Probably you just collapse "'and need tending for a year "'or however long it takes you to get your strength back. "'The last thing I remember was dying, "'so why am I in this wall? Are we enemies? "'Have you got names? "'I'm the Dread Pirate Roberts, but you can call me Wesley. Fezik, "'Inigo Montoya of Spain.' Let me tell you what's been going on. He stopped and shook his head. No, he said. There's too much. It would take too long. The wedding is at six, which leaves us probably something over a half an hour to get in, steal a girl, and get out, but not before I kill Count Rugen. It's impossible, Wesley cried. I am Inigo Montoya, and I do not accept defeat. You will think of something. I have complete confidence in you. I mean, if we even had a wheelbarrow, that would be something, Wesley said. Where do we put that wheelbarrow the albino had, Inigo asked. Over the albino, I think, Fezzik replied. Maybe we can get a wheelbarrow, Inigo said. Well, why didn't you mention that in the first place, Wesley said, sitting up. When Buttercup heard the wedding was to be moved up, she wasn't the least upset. Wesley was always prepared for contingencies, and if he could rescue her at six, he could just as happily rescue her at half-past five. Actually, Prince Humpernick got things going even faster than he had hoped. It was 523 when he and his bride-to-be were kneeling before the aged Archdean of Florin. It was 524 when the Archdean started to speak. And 525 when the screaming started outside the main gate. Buttercup only smiled softly. Here comes my Wesley now, was all she thought. It was not in point of fact, her Wesley, that was causing the commotion out front. Wesley was doing all he could to simply walk straight down the incline toward the main gate without help. Ahead of him, Inigo struggled with the heavy wheelbarrow. The reason for its weight was that Fezzik stood in it, arms wide, eyes blazing, voice booming, in terrible rage. I am the dread pirate Roberts, and there will be no survivors. He was standing there, gliding down through the darkness, quite an imposing figure, seeming all in all probably close to ten feet tall, with voice to match. But even that was not the cause of the screaming. When the giant got halfway down the incline, he suddenly, happily, burst into flames and continued his trip, saying, No survivors! No survivors! In a manner that could only indicate deadly sincerity. It was seeing him happily burning and advancing that started the brute squad to screaming. And once that happened, why, everybody panicked and ran. Once the panic was underway, Yellen realized he had next to no chance of bringing things immediately under control. Fortunately, he had the sense to grab the one and only key to the castle and hide it on his person. Fortunately, too, Wesley had the sense to look for such behavior. "'Give me the key,' Wesley said to Yellen, once Inigo had his sword securely pressing Yellen's Adam's apple. "'I have no key,' Yellen replied. "'I swear on the grave of my parents. May my mother's soul forever sizzle in torment if I am lying.' "'Tear his arms off,' Wesley said to Fezzik, who was sizzling a bit himself now, because there was a limit to just how long the Holocaust cloak he had acquired at Miracle Max's was really good for.' and he wanted to strip a bit, but before he did that, he reached for Yellen's arms. This gate key, you mean, Yellen said, and he dropped it, and after Inigo had taken his sword, they let him run away. Open the gate, Wesley said to Fezzik. Man and wife, you're man and wife, the archdean said. Thank you, holiness, the prince said, whirling towards Rugen. Stop that commotion, he commanded, and before his words were finished, the count was running for the chapel door. It took a full three minutes for the count and the guards to reach the gate, and when they did, the count could not believe it. He had seen Wesley killed, and now there was Wesley, and with a giant and a strangely scarred, swarthy fellow. Something about the twin scars banked deep into his memory, but now was not the time for reminiscing. Kill them, he said to the fencers, but leave the middle-sized one until I tell you, and the four guards drew their swords, but too late, too late and too slow. Because as Fezzik moved in front of Wesley, Inigo attacked, the great blade blinding, and the fourth guard was dead before the first one had sufficient time to hit the floor. Inigo executed a quick and well-formed bow. Hello, he said. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die.
1: My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die.
0: and in reply the count did a genuinely remarkable and unexpected thing. He turned and ran. It was now 537. Inigo, at 537 was so startled at the count's cowardice that for a moment he simply stood there. Then he gave chase, but the count made it through a doorway, slammed it and locked it, and Inigo was helpless to budge the thing. Fezzik, he called out desperately. Fezzik, break it down! Fezzik lumbered to the door, threw his bulk against it hard. The door gave some, a little, but not enough. Fezzik backed away from it now. With a roar, he charged across the corridor, and when he was close, he left the castle floor with both feet and the door splintered. Thank you, thank you, Inigo said, already halfway through the broken door. What do I do now, though, Fezzik called. Back to Wesley, Inigo answered, to full flight now, beginning chasing through a series of rooms. Stupid, Fezzik punished himself with, and he turned and rejoined Wesley. Only Wesley was no longer there. Fezzik could feel the panic starting inside him. There was half a dozen possible corridors, Which, 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 Fezzik said, trying to figure it out, trying for once in his life to do something right. You'll pick the wrong one knowing you, he said out loud. And then he took a corridor and started hurrying along as fast as he could. He did pick the wrong one. Wesley was alone now, and Inigo had no way of knowing that Count Rugen had a Florinese dagger. It took Inigo until 541 before he actually cornered the count in a billiard room. Hello, he was about to say, My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. What he actually got out was somewhat less. Hello, my name is In... And then the dagger rearranged his insides. The force of the throw sent him staggering backward into the wall. Domingo. Domingo. Domingo, he whispered. And then he was, at 42 minutes after five, lost on his knees. I'm sorry, father. Count Rugen heard the words, but nothing really connected until he saw the sword still held in Inigo's hand. You're that little Spanish brat I taught a lesson to, he said, coming closer now, examining the scars. It's simply incredible. Have you been chasing me all these years, only to fail now? I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard of. How marvelous. Inigo could say nothing. The blood fauceted from his stomach. Count Rugen drew his sword. I don't want your sorry. My name is Domingo Montoya, and I died for that sword, and you can keep your sorry. If you were going to fail, why didn't you die years ago and let me rest in peace? The truth of Buttercup's situation did not take genuine effect until she was halfway to Humperdinck's room. There was no Wesley, no sweet Wesley. She gave a terrible sigh, not so much of sadness as a farewell. By 5.48, Buttercup felt quite sure she would be dead. It was still a minute before that as she stood staring at the prince's knives. They were made in varying sizes, and the prince's looked to be one of the largest. She pulled it from the wall, put it to her heart. There are always too few perfect breasts in this world. Leave yours alone, she heard. And there was Wesley on the bed. It was 5.48, and she knew she would never die. Wesley, for his part, assumed he had until 6.15 for his hour to be up, only he didn't have an hour, only forty minutes, but as has been said, he had no way of knowing that. Inigo pulled the knife from his body and stuffed his left fist into the bleeding. Slowly, inch by inch, Inigo forced his body up the wall, using his legs just for pushing, letting the wall do all the supporting that was necessary. Count Rugen struck again, but for any number of reasons, most probably because he hadn't expected the other man's movement, he missed the heart and had to be content with driving his blade through the Spaniard's left arm. Inigo didn't mind. He didn't even feel it. His right arm was where his interest lay, and he squeezed the handle, and there was strength in his hand, enough to flick out the enemy, and Count Rugen hadn't expected that either, so he gave a little involuntary cry and took a step back to reassess the situation. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die and they crossed swords. Inigo dug with his fist, and he didn't want to think what he was touching and pushing and holding into place, but for the first time he felt able to try a move. So the six-fingered sword flashed forward, and there was a cut down one side of Count Rugen's cheek. Another flash, another cut, parallel, bleeding. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! The Count was beginning to experience a decline of nerve. That was just to the left of your heart, Inigo struck again. Another scream. That was below your heart. Can you guess what I'm doing? Cutting my heart out. You took mine when I was ten. I want yours now. We are lovers of justice, you and I. What could be more just than that? The Count screamed one final time and then fell dead of fear. Inigo looked down at him. The Count's frozen face was petrified and ashen, and the blood still poured down the parallel cuts. It was glorious if you like that kind of thing. Inigo loved it. Buttercup was baffled by Wesley's behavior. She rushed to him, expecting to be met halfway in a wild embrace. Instead, he only smiled at her and remained where he was, lying on the prince's pillows, a sword beside his body. Buttercup continued the journey alone and fell onto her very one and darling Wesley. She got off him. Are you angry at me for getting married, she wondered. You are not married, he said softly. Strange his voice was. Not in my church or any other. But this old man did pronounce widows happen. Every day. Don't they, your highness? And now his voice was stronger as he addressed the prince as he entered. Prince Humperting dove for his weapons, and a sword flashed in his thick hands. To the death, he said, advancing. Wesley gave a soft shake of his head. No, he corrected. To the pain. I don't think I quite understand that. "'Wesley lay without moving, but he was smiling more deeply now. "'I'll be only too delighted to explain. "'I expect to breathe a while,' the prince said. "'I think you're bluffing. "'You've been prisoner for months, "'and I myself killed you less than a day ago, "'so I doubt that you have much might left in your arm. "'Possibly true,' Wesley agreed. "'And when the moment comes, remember that. "'You're only alive now because you said to the pain. "'I want that phrase explained.' "'My pleasure. "'It was 5.52 now.' Three minutes left. He thought he had 18. He took a long pause, then started speaking. I am a pirate. We have our special tricks with swords. The first thing you lose will be your feet, Wesley said. The left, then the right, below the ankle. You will have stumps available to use within six months. Then your hands, at the wrist. They heal somewhat quicker. Five months is a fair average. Next, your nose no smell of dawn for you, followed by your tongue, then your left eye, and then my right eye, then my ears, and shall we get on with it, the prince said? It was 5.54. Wrong, Wesley's voice rang across the room. Your ears you keep, so that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. That is what to the pain means. It means that I leave you to live in anguish, in humiliation in freakish misery, until you can stand it no more. So there you have it, pig. And I say this now, live or die, it's up to you. Drop your sword. The sword crashed to the floor. It was 5.55. Wesley's eyes rolled up into his head, and his body crumpled and half-pitched from the bed, and the prince saw that and went to the floor, grabbing for a sword, standing, starting to bring it high, when Wesley cried out, Now you will suffer! To the pain! His eyes were open again, open and blazing. I'm sorry, I meant nothing. I didn't. Look! And the prince dropped his sword a second time. Tie him, Wesley said to Buttercup. Be quick about it. Use the curtain sashes. They look enough to hold them. You do it so much better, Buttercup replied. Woman, Wesley roared, you are the property of the dread pirate Roberts, and you do what you're told. Buttercup gathered the sashes and did what she could with tying up her husband. Humperdinck lay flat while she did it. I wasn't afraid of you, he said to Wesley. I drop my sword because it will be so much more pleasure for me to hunt you down. I'll conquer Gilder, then I'll come for you. The corner you least expect, when you round it, you will find me waiting. I am the king of the sea. I await you with pleasure. There was a movement at the doorway, and Inigo was there. Buttercup cried out at the blood. Inigo ignored her, looked around. Where's Fezzik? Isn't he with you, Wesley said?' Did you at least win your battle? And Inigo said, I did. And Wesley said, Let's try to find some place to defend ourselves. At least perhaps we can go together. And Buttercup said, I'll help you, poor darling. And Fezzik said, Oh, Inigo, I need you. Please, Inigo, I'm lost and miserable and frightened, and I just need to see a friendly face. They moved slowly to the window. Wandering lost and forlorn through the prince's garden was Fezzik, leading the four giant whites. Here, Inigo whispered, Oh, Inigo, I just ruined everything, and I got so lost, and when I stumbled into the stables and found these pretty horses, I thought four was how many of them there were, and four was how many of us there were, too, if we found the lady. Hello, lady. And I thought, why not take them along with me in case we all ever run into each other? And I guess we just did. So while Humperdinck struggled, they jumped, one at a time, and Fezzik caught them gently and put them on the whites, and he still had the key so that he could get out of the front gate. And except for the fact that Yellen had regrouped the brute squad, They would have gotten out without any trouble at all. As it was, when Fezzik unlocked the gate, they saw nothing but armed brutes in formation, Yellen at their lead, and no one smiling. Wesley shook his head. I'm dry of notions. Child's play, of all people Buttercup said, and she led the group toward Yellen. The Count is dead. The Prince is in grave danger. Hurry now, and you may yet save him. All of you, go. Not a brute moved. They obey me, Yellen said, and I'm in charge of enforcement, and and I, Buttercup said, I, she repeated, standing in the saddle, a creature of infinite beauty and eyes that were starting to go frightening, I, she said for the third and last time, am the queen. There was no doubting her sincerity, or power, or capability of vengeance. She stared imperiously across the brute squad. Save Humperdinck, one brute said, and with that they all dashed into the castle. Save Humperdinck, Yellen said. The last one left, but clearly his heart wasn't in it. All I can say is I'm impressed, Wesley told her as they began to ride for freedom. Buttercup shrugged. I've been going to royalty school for three years now. Something had to rub off. You all right? I was worried about you back there on the bed. Your eyes rolled up into your head and everything. I suppose I was dying again, so I asked the Lord of Permanent Affection for the strength to live the day. Clearly the answer came in the affirmative. I didn't know there was such a fellow, Buttercup said. Neither did I, in truth, but if he didn't exist, I didn't much want to either. The four great horses seemed almost to fly toward Florn Channel. It appears to me as if we're doomed then, Buttercup said. Wesley looked at her. Doomed, madam, to be together until one of us dies. I've done that already, and I haven't the slightest intention of ever doing it again, Wesley said. Buttercup looked at him. Don't we sort of have to sometime? Not if we promise to outlive each other, and I make that promise now. Buttercup looked at him. Oh, my Wesley, so do I. From behind them, suddenly closer than they imagined, they could hear the roar of Humperdinck. Stop them! Cut them off! They were admittedly startled, but there was no reason for worry. They were on the fastest horses in the kingdom, and the lead was already theirs. However, this was before Inigo's wound reopened, Wesley relapsed again, and Fezzik took the wrong turn, and Buttercup's horse threw a shoe, and the night behind them was filled with the crescendoing sound of pursuit. That's Morgenstern's ending, Uh, Lady of the Tiger-type effect. This was before the Lady of the Tiger, remember? Now, he was a satirist, so he left it that way, and my father was, I guess, I realized too late, a romantic, so we ended it another way. Well, I'm an abridger, so I'm entitled to a few ideas of my own. Did they make it? Was the pirate ship there? You can answer it for yourself. But for me, I say yes, it was. And I say yes, they got away, and got their strength back, and had lots of adventures, and more than their share of laughs. But that doesn't mean I think that they had a happy ending either. Because in my opinion, anyway, they squabbled a lot, and Buttercup lost her looks eventually, and one day Fezzik lost a fight, and some hot-shot kid whipped Inigo with a sword. And Wesley was never able to really sleep sound because of Humperdink maybe being on the trail. I'm not trying to make this a downer, you understand. I mean, I really do think that love is the best thing in the world, except for cough drops. But I also have to say that life isn't fair. It's just fairer than death, that's all.
1: So complex And how he worshiped the ground she walked And when he looked in her eyes He became obsessed My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel My love is like a storybook story It's as real as the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel